0: The past two weeks we've reviewed the Beatitudes, and it hardly sounds like an impressive group of people that Jesus is describing, Uh, poor in spirit, meek, people who mourn, uh, they're hungering and thirsting, they're merciful, uh, they're making peace, they're being persecuted, and we discussed in depth, what those mean, but it does still sound like not really an impressive bunch of people. And so uh, John Stott asks in one of his commentaries, he says, What can they accomplish whose only passion is an appetite for righteousness and whose only weapon is purity of heart? Are not such people too feeble to achieve anything? especially if they are a small minority in the world, it is evident that Jesus did not share this skepticism. That is to say, Jesus believed that these people who were poor in spirit, meek, pure in heart, peacemakers, actually had the power because of who they rely on to impact the world with the divine order so I invite you to read with me Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 through 16 today as we consider the function of the disciples The last two weeks we've talked about the character of a disciple but now what is the purpose of a disciple you are the salt of the earth but if the salt has lost its taste how shall its saltiness and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Amen. Well, in this passage, we see that God has placed his people in the world for a reason. There's a purpose that we're here. I mean, <clears throat> why not, as soon as we believe, he just raptures us up? I mean, what, why not just take us to heaven? Well, there's a, there's a purpose for us being here. And that is to be an extension of God's character and an extension of his, his purpose for the world. And so Jesus uses three images here. He uses, uses salt, light, and a city on a hill. And that is all meant to communicate the role of the church, which is to be a visible counterculture in a decaying world. And so today I want to talk about this passage, but really the way I see it, the way I'm reading it, is it's not just a duty to be the church. It is a privilege, a privilege to be part of the people of God. What an honor it is to represent God in the world. I mean, that is that is a high calling. One would take pride from being the representative of the president or the representative of another nation, an ambassador. But we are representing the one who speaks universes into being. Sometimes, sometimes I think that the concepts in the Bible are so big And the reason they fall on us, our deaf ears, is because they're so they're too big for us to grasp sometimes. And our we can't wrap our spiritual minds around it. And so they kind of we don't grasp it, but I want to help you grasp it. I want to grasp it more. So the high privilege of the church today. First, here's the privilege. How does the passage start? You are the salt of the earth. Who who is it that God is using to impact the world? He looks at his disciples, the one who he's addressing in this passage. And you can see that in chapter 2, in verse 2, 1 and 2. He's addressing his disciples and he says, you are the salt of the earth not the jewish leadership they're not the salt of the earth they're not the light of the world not the pharisees not the sadducees not the roman army Uh, not kings in foreign lands not the senate not the president not governments none of those are the means through whom god is acting in the world to impact the world he is using you you disciples are the light of the world you are the salt of the earth not the supreme court that's not what god is using to impact the world you are the light of the world you are the salt of the earth yes you the merciful the meek the poor in spirit the peacemakers And God has chosen his disciples and no one else, no one else to be the means through whom he influences and impacts the world. He's not using anyone else. He's not using some other body or agency. He is using the church to be the light of the world. The collection of his disciples to impact the world. Here's here's another way to put this. Um, How has God revealed himself most clearly? Jesus. Jesus is the clear revelation of God to man. And when 2,000 years ago, Jesus came down and he walked among men. But now he is not here. He's risen and he has ascended into heaven. So now I ask you. What is the means, what is the witness that God has left in the world that bears testimony to himself? What is it? It's the church. The church is the witness of God in the world. Because having ascended on high, he has poured out his spirit upon us. And so the church exists the very reason, brothers and sisters, that the church exists is to bear witness to God in the world. Christ ascended to the right hand of the Father. He poured the Spirit out on us, and we, with love and holiness and peace, are displaying the glory of God. Certainly not perfectly, but with, with more consistency and with closer approximation to who God is. And that is what makes the church shine and be salt and impact the world. So these three images now are what I want to focus on. And they all communicate this reality and the fact that the church, his disciples, are to bear witness, to be a visible representation of God in the world. Um, salt you are the salt of the earth. There are many different interpretations of salt. If you didn't know, uh, there was one commentary that had 11 different uses of salt and and what possible theological interpretations could come from that. Um, but the two most prominent, and you probably guessed it, are to preserve and to um, to season. So they would apply salt, especially especially during this time, 2,000 years ago, they would apply salt to meats to avoid decay. And they would also apply salt to make something taste better. That's why you would apply salt to meat, to avoid decay and to make them taste better. In fact, I heard that Roman soldiers were paid in salt at some points. So... What I, what I believe this passage is telling us, what Jesus is saying to us, is that God has placed the church in the world for a reason, and that is to restrain its decay and to, in, and to add the influence of God's Spirit into the world. And I think that's the point of you are the salt of the earth. That we are the ones that God is using to stop the decay of the lost and dying world. And we are the ones whom God is using to add the flavor of God's spirit into the world, for lack of a better word. It's the church. What a privilege it is. What a privilege it is to be gathered for this purpose. Light. Do you, uh, light is desperately needed in darkness. Has anyone ever shot a deer late at night? Or not late at night. You're not allowed to do that. Have you ever shot a deer while bef- just you know at, at before it was illegal time? You, you shot the deer. It runs off into the woods. And now you have to go find the deer in the dark, deep in the woods. You ever been in that situation? Caperina? No? All right, Wesley has been part of of these escapades before. Um, So I I shot a deer, evidently missed it um, a few years ago, but um, you know, the woods gets very odd and peculiar at night. Um, You you start to hear things. It starts to get a little uncomfortable out there, which I kind of like that. I kind of like the sense of danger out there. In fact, uh, where I was hunting, this is a Bread of Life church. They own 70-something acres. So behind there, you can often hear when a, a group of coyotes finally catches their prey. They start howling and, and yipping. And, and so it sounds very, it sounds very um, eerie. And I heard that a few weeks ago and I was recording it. I was walking toward, trying to get closer and closer um, to the sound to, to see how close they get. But it's still very eerie. Um, so where was I? So, um, so I shot this deer. And so I'm, now I'm in the woods. And looking for this deer, cannot find it. But I was utterly lost in these woods and it's only a 70 acre lot that's amazing how darkness just creates confusion and chaos and i i couldn't hear anything but i had my phone on me with the little phone light and so that's what i used to find my way out of the woods and i was just f- trying to find rock walls if you're a lost in the woods follow the rock walls so uh, trying to find the rock walls and follow them out into a field or something and I Finally got out into this field that looked somewhat familiar I was able to orient myself and find my way back to the parking lot it took a long time And that was really turned around for the for a while, but uh, What it in illustration for me how useful light is in darkness That, I think, is the role of the church. As the church, we are the ones who are giving moral clarity to the world. We are the ones whom God is using to give the clear message of the gospel to the world. God is using you, brother, and you, sister, to do that. That's what you are. You are the light of the world. You are the ones whom God has called to give other men the opportunity to see clearly. Now, half of you are saying, I thought Jesus was the light of the world. Yes, he is. And you are certainly a lesser light. Certainly a lesser light. But notice, notice the... Um, the sequence in redemptive history, John Fuller read Isaiah 49, which is the servant of the Lord who seems to be Israel, but not really Israel at the same time. He is a singular figure who embodies Israel and adopts the mission and identity of Israel. And, he, and it, it, the servant of the Lord becomes a he, clearly, as Isaiah goes on. Very interesting passage. And then Jesus, when he comes 2,000 years ago, he stands up and says, I am the light of the world. The very thing that the servant, the Lord was called to be. And now in this phase of redemptive history, this role has been given to the church. And that's why Jesus says, you are the light of the world. And Paul, even in Acts 13, 47, talks about this role being passed on uh, to the church through his mission. So, step back. We, in union with Christ, have been caught up into his mission so that the actions of his disciples are the actions of the mission of Christ. We are his body. We are the ones whom God is using And there is a head, that's Christ. But you know how a body doesn't work if it doesn't obey the head? If I want my arm to do this and it does not do it, then the arm's not good for much, right? So Christ, having ascended, is the head of his body, and he uses it for purposes. And it's the same purposes that he's always had. He's always had to redeem a lost and dying people from a dark world that he might be glorified. So, the disciples, the church, brothers and sisters, have the privilege of bringing clarity to a confused world with the message of the Gospel, while embodying peace, love, and holiness together. That's what makes us a unique, and distinct people who can impact the world he says we're a city on a hill a city and a hill implies the fact that we are supposed to be visible we can't we're not called to blend in we are supposed to be visible and to stand out humbly but confidently in this dark world so the reason the church exists is to bear witness to God. That's the reason we exist, because God wanted something to bear witness to Himself in the world. So you are here for a purpose, not just to be saved together, although that's good, not just to build one another up, although that's good, but are the purpose is that we might be a representation of Him. And isn't this what God has always wanted when he created man in his image? You see how this was his purpose all along. That's what the church is. It's a restoration of God's ultimate purposes, which he established at creation, which was corrupted at the fall, and which was, which was recaptured with the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So what is it then that gives its church gives the church its flavor? What So that's what we are. We are salt, light, a city on a hill, we're visible, we're supposed to represent God. We are called to lock arms with his mission. So what do we do? How do we do that? Well, I think, first of all, there's a one and two here. First of all, the message of the gospel. That cannot be lost. If we, whatever else we do, we're getting to the good works part in a minute. But whatever we do, if we lose the message of the gospel, we will be utterly useless to the world. The message of the gospel is that there is a holy and just God. And that because God is holy, he requires sin to be punished. That is bad news for people. Because humans are very sinful. And we are told that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death and forever without the life and presence of God, which is spoken of in terms so awful that we like to not talk about it usually. Weeping and gnashing of teeth, whatever depression and sadness and anxiety and fear, and trembling you've ever felt before, it cannot compare to being cut off from the life and joy and peace of God. So God is holy and just and we are sinners, but God is also love. And so because God is love, He has stepped down and He has taken the penalty that we deserve in Jesus Christ who died for our sins, nailed them to the cross, took all the weight, the weight of sin upon Himself, drank the cup in our stead, and then defeated death by raising again. And now the good news is that Christ offers to share with you the life that now belongs to Him. That's... One way to construe the gospel and the way that we appropriate that message. Do we respond to that message? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Me and Ryan were just talking about repentance. And Ryan made a great point that you repent is to turn. You turn. And the reason you would turn is because you believe in something. Right? You wouldn't turn to something unless you actually believed in that thing. So believe in repentance. They're, they're two sides of the same coin, right? You, you turn because you trust that thing and not the other anymore. So, if you are not reconciled with God right now or you're not sure where you stand, where you stand with Him, I implore you, be reconciled to Him. I implore you, turn from a life that is godless and oriented towards yourself or the world and turn to Jesus Christ and reorient your life around him entirely. Die to yourself, like Jesus says. Take up your cross and follow him because with him, there is joy everlasting. With him there is reconciliation. And when unbelievers come into our midst, this, I'm still talking about, by the way, still talking about our distinctness, our saltiness, our lightness, our, our city on a hillness, what makes us distinct and can impact the world is the message, it's the message. It's the gospel. So if an unbeliever walks in to our midst, we, we want, yes, we want to show them the love of Christ, and we, but ultimately, I love this. I know I've repeated this a few times in the past few weeks, but it's just good. Paul talks about an, the ideal of an unbeliever coming in to a congregation, I think, in 1 Corinthians 14, 24 through 25. He says, basically, if an unbeliever walks in, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his heart are disclosed, are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. That's what we want in this congregation. We want people to come in and say, wow, God is really among you. Not just while these people are very nice and accepting and loving, but God is in your midst. And Paul says that he is talking about prophecy and, and so we don't have time to unpack all of that. We will be talking about the Holy Spirit, including spiritual gifts and Bible study in the next, I think next month we're starting that. So, to be continued. But... this is how Paul describes the ideal. The secrets of a man's heart are disclosed. And so falling on his face, he worships God and declares God is really... That's what a church should be doing. Convicting of sin, encouraging men to fall on their face and worship God. So that's one way, and that's the way we maintain our saltiness in the world what's another way oh by the way men don't forget we promised to share the gospel with at least one person we're putting training wheels on our congregation we're very young in this we're very immature in our evangelism so we promised to talk to at least one person by March 2nd so let's just do that just even if you have to be awkward about it, just say, can I, can I talk to you about something really quick? I have to do this thing. <laughs> just do that if you have to. <laughs> um, what's another way we maintain our distinctness? It's the kind of fellowship that we are seeking to promote and to embody right here in this church. That's another way we're salt and light. Jesus said, did he not? By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you will have love for one another. Speaking of, the, of a church, a congregation doing that. So we do want people to walk in and say, well, these people cherish one another. Here is the paragraph in our church covenant that speaks about the way we are to have intercourse with one another. We will devote ourselves to this fellowship, to remember one another in prayer, to comfort one another in sickness and distress. Anna gave me elderberry tea when I was sickness. She was working out this very sentence. And and some pill. Mark said it was a placebo, though. It worked. (laughs) To comfort one another in sickness and distress, to be slow to take offense and ready for reconciliation, we endeavor to love one another as brothers and sisters in Christ, giving of our time, our talents, and our treasures to meet the needs of one another, to serve alongside one another, cooperating to see each one of us conform to the image of Christ and to see disciples made of a lost and dying world. Now that's, that is a unique community. That's a kind, of, that's a city on a hill. Right? That's, that, that'll shine. That'll get the job done. so, those are the two ways that we can be salt and light. Now, what, what a privilege that is, amen? What a privilege it is to be in a spot where we can represent God, being ambassadors for his messenger, and through the spirit-driven Christ-likeness of our fellowship, exist as a unique community where people walk in, fall on their faces and say, God is among you. That's a privilege. Now, there is a prospect, there is a possibility, however, that this church <laughs> becomes worthless in the end. In seven years, we could be a worthless church. It's possible. I, feel, I love that from Lord of the Rings. But, but I'm confident of better things, right? I'm confident of better things. What was it? They were facing the orcs and one guy said, you know, there will be a day when men fail, but today is not that day. I love that. That's what I feel about that in this passage. There could be, there could be a day where we become useless as a church. How could that happen? How could we become a useless, worthless church who is only good for being trampled under people's feet? Well, let's see what Jesus says. He says, If the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If salt loses its its flavor, what what is it good for? Salt is only useful, I think, as flavoring or as a preservative, I think on the on a fundamental basis, if it's distinct from the thing that it's applied to, right? It has to be different, first of all. Light is different than darkness. Salt is different than the thing it's applied to. So I think one way, if the church exists to testify to God's love, peace, and holiness, and his gospel. And that's, that's what makes us shine and distinct. If we fail to do that, we become worthless. We become saltless. It is only because we are different. And only because we are peculiar to the world that we can influence it. So our our ability to, our effectiveness as a church will only come through our um, distinctness. Our effectiveness through distinctness. There are some churches, my heart breaks because they spend so much time looking like the world and trying to get the world in to the doors and be palatable for the world And They're They're losing distinct In a good effort to evangelize Many times They're losing their distinctness What makes them different What makes them odd to the world I wonder how So That's the danger If we lose our distinctness Distinctness by assimilating or conforming to the world. So let's be sure that we are not assimilating or conforming to the world as well. Um, Here's another way. We could lose our distinctness, we could conform to the world, we could look like the world, act like the world, think about the things the world thinks about. We become worldly in our mind, worldly in our affections, and all and we think primarily about what we are doing for ourselves and it becomes self-oriented and not not Godward, not eternal. And, and so we could lose our distinctness in that way. Here's another way. So not only losing our distinctness could we we become worthless, but by hiding, hiding, right? The light. You are the light of the world. People don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. So let your light shine. So hiding, hidden light, hidden light is very useless to God. Um, I want to read you a quote here from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Now, if you don't know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, uh, he was a German theologian during World War II um, who was executed by Hitler because he did not sympathize with the Nazis and he called the church. He was one of the only are part of the the small German movement that refused to assimilate their theology to the Nazi regime. But other churches were doing that. Very interesting. They were assimilating their message to Nazism. And so this paragraph that I'm about to read is sort of, I think, geared towards those churches and those people who had assimilated their message to Nazism and lost their distinctness and maybe their soul in the process. And this is his comments on this passage being light. He says, To flee into invisibility is to deny the call. Any community of Jesus which wants to be invisible is no longer a community that follows him. Now here's a man putting his money where his mouth is. To, he could have been invisible and kept his life, but he decided to be visible and die for fidelity to Jesus Christ. No one after shining a lamp puts it under a bushel, but on a lamp stand. The bushel basket under which the visible community hides its light can be fear of human beings just as much as it could be intentional conformity with the world for some arbitrary purposes, whether it be missionary purposes or whether it arises from misguided love of people. But it may also be, and that is even more dangerous, a so-called reformational theology which even dares to call itself a theology of the cross. And now I think he's leveling his eyes at Germans who are assimilating themselves to the Nazis, Uh, whose signature is that it prefers a humble invisibility in the form of total conformity to the world over Pharisaic visibility. In that case, the identifying mark of the community ceases to be an extraordinary visibility. I think that is excellent, and I think it is honest, because Bonhoeffer decided not to be invisible. He decided to be visible and shine and be a city on a hill. And I think the Lord gave him influence because of that. Because, it was because of that, sacrifice because he took a stand that the Lord has allowed him to have influence in the church after his death. Very interesting, death always brings life in God's economy, whether it's a death to self or a death in real life. It, it's, if, you, if you die in any way for Christ, that's what he uses. So don't be ashamed. At, right now, Let's not hide our life by be, light by being ashamed of the gospel. You have people at work? Do they know you're Christians? Do, have, you, have you ever said anything to them about Christ? I mean this, yes, to chasten you, but in love and to encourage you to do it. Have, have, do they? Or are you visibly Christian to them in word and action? Be visibly Christian and don't hide under a bushel. Under, what would that bushel be? We could, we could erect many bushels of excuses, right? So we must be distinct and visible. That's easy for you to say, pastor. You don't have the job security thing. Yes, that is, a lot of things I say up here are very easy for me to say. I I know that. I, I realize this. And so, I get that. I know it's easy to quote Bonhoeffer when we're not under Nazi control. We have a very squishy, mushy, milk toast, easy way right now. But it's, a, it's, it's time to gain ground. Now we can gain ground for Christ in the gospel. Now we can build and really be a city on a hill. Now we can influence. Now we can gain ground and start to crush the head of Satan. Now's the time for the church to become strong. Now is the time to increase the standards of church leadership. Now is the time to be clear about the gospel. Now, now we can start gaining ground. Amen? So, if we're distinct but not visible like monks, then we're useless. If we are visible but simply look and act like the world, then we are purposeless. So what is all this for? It's for the glory of God. Verse 16. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. All of this is for the glory of God, that his name might be great His name might be thought of as higher and more worthy and greater than before. When people look at our church or your life, do they have a higher esteem for God? I say that to me first. Do they have a higher esteem for God? Or a lower esteem for God? And do not hide behind, well, we're all sinners. You are a spirit-infused saint of God who has been called to be salt and light. Yes, you're a sinner, but you are transformed and renewed day by day. Now, good works, (coughs) so that others might see your good works, works good works and glorify god now we have a a good conservative baptist congregation here and we get a little uncomfortable when we hear the word good works even if it's coming from Jesus i fear and i think that's a bad thing and i think there's two reasons though that people In conservative congregations get uncomfortable when they hear the word good works. Number one, works. The word works is usually thought of as opposed to the gospel itself, right? We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. We're saved by grace, not works. So by grace you are saved through faith, faith, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Not, not a result of works so that no man may boast, right? Works bad, grace good. And so the simplicity of evangelicalism has rattled on with that kind of rhetoric for years. Now, works can be bad if, if they are done in order to merit salvation. I was trying to put into practice the, our evangelism, you know, covenant with one another a few days ago or a week or two ago now. Uh, I went to see someone at the hospital and the the lady at the checkout stand, you know, was or trying to get me in. She was just this nominal Christian. She says, well, when I see somebody at the... Uh, grocery store, you know, I let them go ahead of me. And that, that was evidence that she was <laughs> in God's favor to her. And so, you know, I, we have to talk a little bit about sin. And we have to talk a little bit about Christ here. And so we we're, we're, go, were going back and forth about that. But what's very interesting is that is works salvation, and I think most people, if you ask them, well, how, how do I know I'm saved? Well, I'm saved because I think God will see that I've done good things and, and then he'll you know, honor that. Work salvation. Do you see that? Do you see what you're doing is you are saying that God is going to be so impressed or that God will see the good that I've done and grant me eternal life, and nothing is said about the need for Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Do you see that? So, that's how works are bad. Now, what about works are not bad? Works are not bad if they're done as a Christian in cooperation with the Spirit, for the love and glory of God, right? And that's not bad. So those are that's a good, good work. In fact, throughout the Bible, throughout the New Testament, God's people are called and even, get this, created for good works. Because Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 does say, Saved by grace, not, not by works, so that no one may boast, You know what verse 10 says? For we are his workmanship, created in in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk, walk in them. Very interesting. So we're not saved by works, but we are saved in a very real sense for works. Paul says, learn to stir one another up for love and good works. So you're not saved by them, but you are saved for them in a very real sense. Secondly, the second reason that we're uncomfortable about good works is that very often those who establish um, efforts of of good works, soup kitchens and clothing drop-offs and bingo nights with food and and things like this, very often these people have lost the gospel. And so um, I probably told you this before, but one time me and a buddy were thinking about uh, what could we do evangelistically? And he wanted to start a soup kitchen at my dad's church and, and get these ideas. And and I was like, yes, and then we could share the gospel like, with them as they're eating. He said, and he said, well, I'm afraid that might, that might kind of scare people off. And I said, brother, I don't want to sit here and shove food in people's mouths and send them to hell on full stomachs. I want them to actually come so that they can hear the gospel. And so there was a, there was a, a difference of, of purpose in what we were talking about and doing. So, very often people who establish good works ministries have lost the gospel. And we see that. We see that out in the world. And I'm afraid sometimes good Bible-believing Christians therefore back off of good works. I'm sure... Just another example of how we see the good works thing abused. I'm sure everyone has by this point seen the he gets us um, ads. The problem, and I I hope you've been able to discern the problem with that, is that um, the message implies that Jesus loves people, but he doesn't actually change or save people. From their sins he just loves on people and we ought to love on people too and that's the old message that's it just 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 do good not eternal good just do good stuff to people it becomes this ridiculous message it could do good in this life but there's nothing said about eternal life salvation from sin transformation by the holy spirit that's all that repentance and faith left out so that's some reasons we might be uncomfortable with good works. Um, but we and I have been that person in my life. I've been the kind of person. Well, it's all about the message. That's it. It's only the message, and it's it is primarily the message. But Jesus come, created us for good works. We are to love and stir one another up to good works. It is the good works in this passage that give glory to God. So what could you do to display the glory of God by doing good? What, what could we do? What talent do you have? What bread could you bake? What, what money could you give? By the way, the good works don't just go out there. They they do go in here too, right? Paul says, um, do good to everyone, but especially those of the household of faith. We we are going to touch more on this um, in some other sermons, but be encouraged because the Lord has the Lord has privileged you He has privileged us together to actually be part of his mission What an honor it is to be a representative of God in the world Let us at the same time seek to actually represent the love of God through the message and also through the works, through, 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 the, through the helping of an unbeliever in need, whatever that might be, displaying the love of Christ, displaying the love of Christ to all. And, to, and we should be indiscriminate with good works as a representation of Jesus Christ. I'll end with this. I was talking to somebody who, uh, I think he was giving a a bottle of soda to somebody. (laughs) And uh, that, you know, somebody was not well off. And uh, the bottle of soda. This man was a Christian giving this bottle of soda. And uh, he said, here, and... The other man said, well, oh, thank you very much. And the Christian said, but you've got to take it in the name of Jesus. You've got to take it in the name of Jesus. And he insisted upon this. And then the, the man receiving it says, all right, I take it in the name of Jesus. He, he was a self-confessed Muslim, but he was taking it in the name of Jesus. I think that I love the simplicity and boldness of that. And he got to share the gospel with him. Just even sharing a bottle of soda. So what what are the good works we could do? I mean, there's there's a myriad, a myriad of good works we could do. But always use them as a platform for the gospel to the glory of God. Amen? All right.